Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Ilana Diane is one of the great journalists in the world, feared and respected by officials uh, throughout Israel, watched and listened to by people throughout the country for her probing, incisive reports on Israeli television and radio. Ilana Diane was a, a fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics recently, And we sat down to talk about uh, the current state of Israeli politics and Israel's place in the world. Ilana, today you're one of the most influential journalists in Israel, but uh, you were born in Argentina and you were raised in your first years in Argentina. Tell me about that. Tell me about your family and and, and, uh, their history and your journey to Israel. First of all, I, oddly enough, don't remember anything of my childhood in Argentina. Perhaps it's not that odd, because when you come to Israel at the age of six, especially Israel of the beginning of the 70s, you want to become an Israeli so badly, so fast, so totally, that I forgot everything about being from somewhere else. I sort of, forgive the expression, I raped the South American accent, which is a beautiful accent, but I didn't want to sound like someone who came from somewhere else. And I took away those, you know, those pearl earrings that they give you when you're five and you live in what we call in the galut, in the exile. Mm -hmm. And I wanted so badly to become an Israeli. Uh, But my parents, it's an interesting story because when you take my family's story, and I bet almost every Jewish family, it's as if the story of the Jewish people is encapsulated in the story of one family, because you have my father's family from, they live in a small shtetl in the Ukraine. His father was cousin of the father of Moshe Dayan, the famous Moshe Dayan. Mm. And the family of Moshe Dayan emigrated to Israel at the beginning of the 20th century. And my grandfather's my grandfather's family, I mean, my grandfather himself, when he escaped the pogroms pogrom, and the riots, yeah. uh, Moshe Dayan's father came from Israel and said, don't come to Palestine, there's hunger, there's war, there's trouble, go to Argentina. So they went to Argentina. On the way, my aunt was born in Poland, my father was born already in Argentina, and my older uncle is the only one who remembers that conversation from the Ukraine. But when I grew up in Argentina, if there's something that I remember, or at least I remember being told, is that my parents never had, for instance, uh, a closet in their bedroom because they were all the time on the way to Israel. They knew that they're Mm. going to make Aliyah. The one thing that I remember my father saying many times is that he said, when my parents left Europe, 
they left Europe with a curse on their lips because Europe was bad for the Jews. Yes. I should tell you, my father made that same journey from Ukraine in to the early country. 20s to, to the U.S., yeah. And, and, and it's exactly the same because Argentina, as much as the U.S., became a safe haven for Jews, a great place for us. And that's why my father said, he said when, when his father left Europe, he left Europe with a curse on his lips. But he said when we left Argentina for Israel, we left Argentina with a blessing on our lips because South America was good for the Jews. So we have no bad memories. Uh, we came to Israel to have a better life in many senses. And I guess if all of that explains something about myself, is that although I elected to become a reporter, I can never be a neutral reporter. I chose to live in this country. I dearly love this country, the state of Israel. And as much as I can be critical, as, in, as much as I can be oppositional, and as much as I can search to uncover things that are not pleasant to read or to see or to hear, I really do it out of deep, deep very deep love for this place. I, I'm sure that's true, although it, it, it isn't always received that way <laughs> by the government and others knows, who are yeah. the subjects of your investigations and your reporting. Yeah, by the way, we had uh, just in the last three or four months, two episodes in which I can tell you that um, we were under fire as I guess we seldom were. And one of those was the uncovering of a very problematic behavior on the part of a left-wing activist from a pro-Palestinian organization in Israeli. And we uncovered this improper behavior. And so my friends from the press were all after me, because how dare you? And, and, and by the way, there, I could understand the argument because human rights organizations in Israel are under siege in a way in the last couple of years. And so I could understand why they don't like the fact that we uncover something bad going on there. But then, a couple of weeks later, we aired a, a very, um, how they put it, provocative uh, piece about a general who was very famous, Gandhi, he was nicknamed, and he was assassinated 15 years ago by Palestinian terrorists. But before that, when he was an acting general in the Israeli military, we uncovered uh, very problematic be behavior on his behalf, including rape, including attempted rape, including the killing of prisoners who surrendered by then. And his family, of course, didn't like this report, and many other Israelis didn't like it. You, uh, I want to... I wanna go backward and then come back to your mm -hmm. reporting and and, uh, and uh, ask you about current events in, in Israel. But I, I'm interested uh, about the Israel that you arrived in as a six-year-old in the early 70s and the Israel of today. And uh, how, how has it changed? Um, you know, in, I'm, I'm, I know in many ways every country has, but... But it seems like, you know, I visited Israel in the late 70s and uh, almost stayed, actually, just because I was so impressed with the um, idealism, that hard-bitten, you know, there was concern. But there wasn't this fixation on um, 
materialism that I, as a 23-year-old young reporter, saw here, you know, fixation with getting the, the big screen TV and all of that stuff, because there were bigger concerns, survival, you know, being one of them, and I found that stimulating. Um, also met a very nice woman over there, but that that's another story. <laughs> but um, uh, I came I came back, but it seems vastly different now. And uh, I'm wondering what changes you see, and what do you see are constants. You know, I think that the materialism that you're implying that has taken over Israel as well is good news. In a way, it's good news. We are becoming normal. We want to be so normal. Our kids know everything about Beyonce <laughs> and about The Simpsons and about Jay-Z and about Lemonade and about Apple and about Nasdaq and about Sushi. They hike in South America. They get high in Dharamsala. They come back to become engineers. They came, come here to Palo Alto. That's fine. I met an Israeli yesterday night in the north part of Chicago. He's living here for 35 years. He hardly speaks Hebrew anymore. We spoke English, which was amazing for me because his name sounds as if it just, you know, came out of Haifa. And, and on the other hand, I, I felt that for the first time, I am not judgmental. It's okay for an Israeli to choose to live in Chicago. It's okay for my kids to come to New York to study, hopefully to come back. So that's normal. And I think the more we become normal, the more we will try to be at peace with ourselves, first of all, and then with our nation, with our neighbors. On the other hand, the undercurrents are still there. I mean, the existential fears, part of them are rational and part of them are not. And part of them are, breed, are bred by, by our leadership. And part of, the, of them are politically motivated. But some of them are real. And so you have a country which is really still schizophrenic or mostly schizophrenic, more than ever, because kids want to live a normal life, but still they go to the military. And, you know, I just spoke to my daughter before I came here. She's an officer in the military. She's five years in the military already. And she's a... How old is she? She's 23. She's a company commander. She's the commander of the course that trains the instructors of tanks in the military, and she already signed on for two more years in the military. She's into it, okay? And you know what she told me? She said, you know the girls that I'm commanding on now? She, she just told me, I have some interesting observations about this generation, as if it's another generation. <laughs> and she said, they come to the military and they want to do a significant service, but only because they think it will empower them. No sense of contribution to the society. And I said, yeah, Ellie, that's good news. That's good news. Because they are motivated by some personal motive, but eventually they will get into it, and that's the point. When you live there, that's the point, David. Even if you are making a lot of money, if, even if you dream of a big screen and want to have a lot of money, you still live in a country, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I, and I, look, I was 23 years old when I, uh, when I made that observation. So I'm not, I'm not trying to be judgmental, no, no, but, no. I just, but, but I sense that there's been a big change. You know? There has been, and, and, and I'm, I'm trying to say that the, the change, as I see it, mostly is for the better. Mostly, it's, it, it's okay for us to become more materialistic, more capitalistic, it's okay. Plus, you have always these forces that take us back 
to be a country which is still in a way fighting for its existence. In a way, many of us still feel drafted. And I'll give you just one example. The last Memorial Day, okay? The last Memorial Day, I went with Yaeli, with my daughter, to the cemetery where an, a young officer is buried. He was a, com a company commander and he, he was killed in the Second Lebanon War together with the son of David Grossman, of the author David Grossman, in the same tank. Yaeli knows his mother because she invited her to give lectures to her soldiers. I know his mother because I did a documentary on that tank and those four guys who were killed. From there, Yaeli and me went together to the family of a soldier that my husband was his commander in the first Lebanon war. And from there, I went to Jerusalem to visit a family of another soldier who was killed a couple of years ago in Gaza. And I did a documentary on him and on his pals. He was killed in the same incident in which Hadar Goldin was uh, uh, kidnapped inside the tunnel. And I did a whole piece about that. So that's how I spent the last Memorial Day. And this last kid that I'm telling you about, he was a fan of Apoel Yerushalayim, a great basketball team in Jerusalem. The stars of the team were there with the family on Memorial Day. So it's still not a normal country, any way you look at it. It's not. You, um, you, you were steeped in law. You studied law and became a journalist. Why did you study law and how did you get to, into journalism? Well, I guess I studied law because I figured that's the only place where I can find structures, what I thought would be rational, organized, systematic, schematic structures that I was looking for. I, I was looking for something organized that I can make sense of. And I figured, you know, I can, I can combine a, senses, a sentence or two. I figured that I have the rhetoric ability, and that's why I went... To study law, the, the, the best thing that happened to me in my short legal career was that I came to this country and I, I studied here at Yale Law School. We are in Chicago University. I hope nobody's too mad at me that I, I did that at Yale. We will, give you, uh, we will give you a pass on Well, that. nobody's perfect, yeah. yes. But Yale was an amazing experience. I, I have to tell I, I'm sure that this was one of the defining places of my life. Because here is where I could, you know, surrender to intellect and just do things that make me a better person, a richer person, a more thoughtful person. And I felt for years later that I'm running on the gasoline that I got here at Yale. So that was an amazing experience. But how did you make the transition from, from law to journalism? It was backwards. I mean, I started as a soldier before I went to law school in Tel Aviv. I started in the military radio yes. station, which is called Galei Tzahal, and it's basically the most popular radio station in Israel. Again, figure, go figure how it happens, but, but that's where young people are tuned to, and that's what, you know, that's the station that gives them the music they like and the news they like. And that's why, by the way, I, I still broadcast there once a week. And, uh, and, and I, I, I think I know if there is a moment that transformed me into a reporter, it's the day in which a grenade was thrown at a left-wing activist marching in Jerusalem, demonstrating against the Lebanon War, the first Lebanon War. 
and our correspondent who was covering the demonstration called me. I was at the desk, a young, not important producer, and he said there was a boom. I heard a boom. And I stayed for 36 hours straight in the station producing radio newscasts because it was a terrible event. And I think that's when I felt that I want to be where things happen and I want to make sure people understand. That's something, of course, that I understood later. I want to make sure that people understand deeply, really, truly understand what happens around them. Over the course, we, we talked a little bit about change, changes in Israel. Over the course of your uh, quarter century in, in, in this work, you've uh, interviewed and observed Israeli leaders, uh, uh, m- many Israeli leaders, um, from uh, Rabin and Perez and uh, Sharon to Bibi twice, um, Netanyahu. Uh, talk about the evolution of leadership in uh, in Israel, and talk about these characters that you you covered and um, and, and changes in leadership. You know, we talked yesterday, you and I, briefly about what happens in this country with Donald Trump, what happens in my country with Bibi Netanyahu, and I, I told you that I'm afraid you can afford Trump. We cannot afford Trumpism. And the point is that we cannot even afford a good, decent CEO. We need not only a good leader, we need great leaders. Israel cannot afford just somebody who can run the country. By the way, Olmert, for instance was a relatively good CEO, most people say that. But Sharon was the last leader who you could say that is bigger than life, Mm -hmm. that is beyond time and place, that his biography in a way reflects the biography of the state of Israel. You had generations of leaders who came out of the revolutionary experience and then the 67 war and, and were shaped by those experiences and had stature that uh, gave the, them a, a, a perspective and a, a, a sort of platform. Exactly. And by the way, they were not flawless. Ben-Gurion was a petty politician at times. And Sharon, God knows, was, was ruthless at, at times. And they had their share of mistakes. But Begin, Ben-Gurion, and Sharon, and to an extent Levi Eshkol, who was the prime minister on the 67 war, they were bigger than life. They were leaders who stood up to the occasion. Which is the occasion? The occasion of leading a country, which is, is a miracle, is really a miracle. The, the, the sheer existence is a miracle, and the success is a miracle, and the continuation of the existence is a miracle. But, but someone who can make miracles is someone who cannot be just, you know, a politician who deals with day-to-day politics. It has to be someone who can, you know, look at, at the things from somewhere else. It has to be someone that I will look up to. Someone that I will look up to. And I think ever since Sharon, we didn't have such a leader. And again, it doesn't mean that one had to agree with everything, everything Sharon did. But he was something who could transform himself time and again into something else. You know, I, I went, uh, I was on a, a, a trip to Israel with a group of democratic leaders in 1994. And uh, we met with um, three uh, leaders, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, who was uh, leading uh, Likud. We met with uh, Shimon Peres, who was, the f- I guess, the foreign minister at mm-hmm. the time. 
and, and with Rabin. And he was prime minister at the time. Prime minister, and it was at the time of Oslo, uh, the peace negotiations, and uh, one person in the group asked the same question of all three, which was, uh, what would you say to the settlers uh, if uh, you reach a peace accord and uh, this becomes Palestinian territory? And uh, Netanyahu said, well, I won't have to tell them anything because if I'm prime minister, we won't cede the territory. Uh, Perez said, um, I would tell them they're free to live under Palestinian rule, uh, which was... I don't think he meant it to sound as dismissive as it sounded, but it sounded dismissive. And Robin, who uh, was barely tolerating us, honestly, uh, <laughs> kind of uh, said wearily, uh, I would tell them that uh, too much blood has been spilled and that peace has a price, and this is the price. And it was so evident why he was the, why he was the leader. And um, and uh, probably less than a year later, uh, he was assassinated. He was assassinated. How how much did that one act, that assassination, change the course of events in in Israel and the Middle East? It, uh, There's a theory. There's a theory that says that Igal Amir, the guy who killed, who murdered Rabin, killed the prospects of peace in the Middle East. It can be argued, but it can also be argued that many Israelis were disillusioned even before that. There's no it's, no, it's no coincidence that Rabin was doing very badly in the polls, that he probably wouldn't have won the next elections. And I think that many Israelis have felt ever since the, the, the first and mainly was the second... Was that because of, because he was so aggressively pursuing uh, the accord? Because of what happened later, because of the wave of terror that evoked after the Oslo Accord. So you had Oslo at 93, and you had a, a wave of terror in 95 before Rabin's assassination. And then, if you took it from a centrist Israeli point of view, the middle, is middle whatever, middle Israeli, average Israeli, the Missouri, Kansas, Missouri, Israeli, okay? <laughs> so, and that's Haifa, I guess. Yes. And, and what he or she would tell you, listen, we went and signed the Oslo Accords. We gave them half the, you know, half the land between the, the sea and the river. And then we got the wave of terror of 95. Barak came here to Camp David with Clinton and Arafat and seeded even more than that. And then what we got? The second intifada, bloody and explosive and, and, and suicide terrorists and more than a thousand Israelis being killed in a, in a bloody wave of terror like we never had. And then you had Sharon, Sharon 2005, the disengagement. Mm -hmm. And then you got Kassam showering, being showered at Sderot and Netivot and Ashkelon and Ashdod and all the southern part of Tel Aviv. So Israelis, the middle Israeli would tell you, every time we do some kind of concession, we get a slap on our face. We get a wave of terror in response. And yet, I would argue, coming back to your question, whether Igal Amir was successful, and yet I would argue that if there was a leader today on our part, and if there was a leader, a true leader today on their part, and they would come with an offer, 75% of Israelis, and we all know the end game, right? Most of isolated settlements will have to be evacuated. 
no right of return for the Palestinians, some kind of international solution in Jerusalem. The water problem has to be resolved somehow. Basically, this is the scheme, the Clinton scheme. 75% of Israelis would sign on. 65% of Palestinians would sign on. But that's exposed. Ex ante, our 75% today don't believe their 65%. And their 65% don't believe our 75%. And even worse than that, our 25%, the minority who will never let it happen, becomes ever more strong, ever stronger, and ever more influential. And their 35% become ever more violent and pursuing a kind of bloody terrorism that makes Israelis even more disillusioned. So it's a, it's a vicious cycle, as vicious as you can think. You sat down uh, with, uh, with uh, President Abbas um, recently for an interview. Talk about that and what, what, how, you, how you evaluated that discussion and did that add to your concern about the vicious cycle? I, I, guess, I guess we should have discussed that question before the break because it's good to go to the break on an optimistic note. And that's a more optimistic yes. note. I, I told you, you were a, <laughs> I'm intimidated because I know you're very good at this. <laughs> at so, cliffhangers that, yes. you know, that, that make you stay tuned. But anyway, I, uh, you know, I found a person that when you sit with him, First of all, he's a, a very warm person. And, and also, um, it was amazing because I never heard him before publicly denounce this last intifada yes. and, and tell me about what he would do if he would see one of his grandchildren with a knife. And he'd say, I'd never let them go out with a knife. I would be dead before I let that happen. And he, you know, he was telling me about his people going into schools and finding knives in the handbags of in the, the school bags of the kids and taking them away. On the other hand, you know, when he's not on his and we should point out for those who haven't been paying close attention, there's been a rash of knifings, many of them by young people, mm-hmm. um, as kind of an act of not kind of, but as an act of resistance, an act of terrorism uh, that has become a running story uh, in Israel and around Jerusalem and. Uh, it's a source of great concern. It's a source of great, great concern, but most people, especially, by the way, the brass in Israel, the top military officers would tell you that the Palestinian Authority is, the, the, the authority and its security forces are the one thing standing between us and a much worse bloodshed. So that's something which is agreed upon in Israel. That's why there still is security coordination between the IDF and the Palestinian Authority. But the problem, really, David, the real problem is that even if Abu Mazen wants, even if he badly wants to to go on and engage in a dialogue, in a process which will lead to a historic compromise, the guy has no real power on the ground. Mm-hmm. The guy cannot deliver. So he wants but cannot deliver. The other guys who can deliver don't want. That's really the... The, the other guys meaning Hamas, Hamas. Meaning Hamas. And meaning the, f- the most powerful forces within Palestinian society. So that's where we are. That's where we stand. Could another leadership on the Israeli side trigger something good happening? I bet it could. I bet it could. And you know what? If there's something I've taken with me from the visit to Ramallah, and that's... I, I know it's an anecdote. But for me, it was something. 
I came to the to the checkpoint. To the it's not the checkpoint. It's the desk of the guy at the entrance to the office of the president of the race, a Palestinian security guy, who was checking my bag, and he said, "I need your iPhone," and I gave him my iPhone. And then he found my iPad, and he said, "I need your iPad." And I said, I "I'm sorry, friend. I need it for the interview." He said, "I'm sorry, ma'am. I need it." with me. I said, listen, I, I'm very sorry. I do need it for the interview. <laughs> he said, I'm really sorry, but I need to take it away. And then I said, I told him in, in Arabic, Malesh, take it. No, that's no problem. You know what? Take it. And he said, you know what? Take it, you. <laughs> All he wanted is goodwill. All he wanted <laughs> is for me to mean well. Once I told him, you know, you can take it, he said, take it yourself. And that's a metaphor to the good things that can happen. What, talk about Bibi Netanyahu. You, you talked about a, another kind of leadership. Uh, talk about him and, and, and how you evaluate him as a leader and what motivates him. That's, I think that's the billion-dollar question. What motivates him? Because I do think that Bibi Netanyahu is motivated by authentic, deep, and powerful motives which stem from his childhood his family, his father, his upbringing, he does feel, he truly feels responsible for the fate of the Jewish people. And I think that's what made him conduct himself in the Iran subject the way he did. And I think that's part of the explanation for his, for the good things he did and for the less uh, appreciated, appreciated things that he did. Uh, I think he truly feels that he is responsible for something big. I think whenever he, and he told me that in so many words, he told me, when I come to work every day, I feel the weight of responsibility on my shoulders. That was a conversation we had with respect to the Iran nuclear uh, program. And I, I believe him. Then when it comes to day-to-day -day politics, there's another explanation to, to his behavior. I think Netanyahu realized he has to play for his base. That's his words. He has to protect his base. That's how he wins elections. He goes to the right, and then if he wins, he can afford himself correcting back to the center. Uh, it explains also what happened last week in Israel, and that's when he got rid of the defense minister, Bogi Alon, who is a more centrist guy uh, and, and probably will appoint instead of him uh, Avigdor Lieberman, who is relatively extreme right. Netanyahu caters to his base. That's the basic explanation to what he does. I think many Israelis still see him as the only one who became a synonym to prime, minister, prime ministership. That's mm -hmm. part also of the explanation. Netanyahu managed to become, you know, over the last 20 years, most of the time he was prime minister. Over the last 20 years, 96 to 2006, there was a short episode with Rabin and a short episode with Barak and a short episode with Olmert. Other than that, it was Bibi. And he understands, David, that's perhaps the most important point, when he caters to the base, when he speaks about the weight of responsibility, when he speaks of himself in terms of the leader of the Jewish people and the one responsible for the fate of the Jewish people, he understands something very deep about Israelis, about what makes us tick, 
about our deepest fears and traumas and scars, and he knows how to translate it into political capital. And I got to tell you one story that I will never forget, perhaps my most uh, exciting broadcast ever. I was in the Likud headquarters on the night that Bibi Netanyahu was elected for the first time prime minister, 1996. That was less than a year after Rabin's assassination. And he started off, they started off well behind, 25 points or something. Right. And the exit polls gave Perez the prime ministership by a point or two. But then during the last, the first two hours after the, the ballots were closed, Perez was leading by four, five, six points. And I was there at the Likud, and everybody were devastated, was devastated. And Bibi came, and that's the point. Bibi came sort of to give what was supposed to be a concession speech. But he was not about to concede anything. It's as if he knew, David. It's as if he knew something that we didn't know. Because he was there composed, thanking the activists, and saying, we'll see the light of day when morning comes, something like that. And then all of a sudden, two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, the results are starting to shift as you get the, the, the real results from real ballots. And Bibi takes the elections. And exactly the same thing happened now, 2015, when everybody, you know, the, the left-wing journalists and the, the liberal press and everybody was, this time Labour is taking the, uh, the elections and everything, and it's as if Bibi knew. Because, because he, was, he was observing Israelis like no pollster can, like no reporter can. It's as if he understands us from within. He does. He played uh, a very hard game going into the last election, came here, and I want to talk in a minute about U.S. relations with Israel, uh, on the Iran Treaty, spoke to our Congress, which seemed more like an event that was geared toward Israel. Uh, he And then in the final days, uh, uh, played the security card hard, played the race card hard, um, and, um, and played the I'll never, there'll never be a two-state solution card, which is a very tough card to play. You say he can shift back. Mm -hmm. He did. And he did almost immediately, but is that is that believable? I mean, do you think that he is committed to a two-state solution? And how could he possibly effectuate one, given his coalition? The, the, the short answer is that I don't know. I really don't know whether Netanyahu believes deep down in his heart that the two-state solution is desirable, is possible, is something to aspire to, is something that he can ever find himself committed to in political terms. I simply don't know. But I, I, do, know, I do know one thing, that if, if he is hesitant, if more likely than not he will not go for a two-state solution, it's basically David because that's the way he sees reality. He sees reality not with any pink-painted glasses. He sees reality almost always from the worst-case scenario point of view. It's a very Jewish way of looking at things, and I would want our leaders, my countrymen, 
my fellow countrymen, to get rid of this view of the world. This is why we left the exile. We came to Israel to stop being victims. We came to Israel to stop being those who always feel persecuted and always look at the dark side of life. We came to Israel to recreate the Jewish person, to become someone who can be optimistic because he, can, he or she can build something. We did build something. So we were supposed to get rid of, the, of, of this, this gown of the victim. And, and, and you know what? If you look at us and the Palestinians, it's really a contest of victimhood. We both feel victims. We feel still victims of the Holocaust, which we are, of course. But the Holocaust is over. We are Am Chofshi Be'artso. That's our, our anthem. We are free people in their own land. That's our national anthem. Liot Am Chofshi Be'artsenu. Hatikva. And they are still victims of the Nakba, of the 1948 disaster that took them, their land away. Right? And, and when, when Bibi Netanyahu, if, if, we, if we sat with him right now, and if we could see through him, I bet we could see suspicion and skepticism and fear more than anything else. That's what drives him in politics, and that's what drives him in statesmanship. That is not to say that he's wrong across the board. He's not wrong across the board. We are a villa in the jungle, like Ehud Barak uh, used to say. The Arab world is in turmoil. There's nobody that you, there's nothing that you can grasp to, nothing that you can hold on to, right? It's not as if on the Palestinian side there's somebody with whom you can, you can really deal. It's not as if in Syria there's somebody. Iraq is not existent anymore. But and as you mentioned, the experience in the past in terms of concessions has been, uh, yeah. has not been all good. So, you know, so if I'm trying to sum it up, security. exactly. So if I'm trying to sum it up, Netanyahu has an argument to be made. But if I give you my sense, my true sense of it, and there's somebody that you know so well that I can relate to and see the difference. When you look at Barack Obama, how come these guys really are like oil and water? That was my next question. So go ahead. You, you ask it first. And no, then no, you asked <laughs> it and you answered. Okay, okay. Obama is someone, I think, who is most of the time confident that good things can happen. His critics would say that makes him naive. But with this naivete, he went on and got the deal with Iran, which Bibi Netanyahu thinks it's a bad deal, but many other Israelis, including top brass in Israel, think it's good news, because it gives us a decade, perhaps a decade and a half, of silence on that front. So there you have it. Someone on the American side, Barack Obama, it's not only that they disagree on the subjects. They are so different personalities because Barack Obama is standing wherever he stands and he is optimistic about the world. He, he, says, his, he says it all the time. We are living in a better world than we used to live. And, and, and you know, when I think about it, the way Barack Obama brought himself up, the fact that he invented himself, he decided that he will be black, although he was born mm -hmm. both. He decided that he will be Christian, although we know that he wasn't born Christian. He decided that he will be a successful student. He decided he will switch from wherever he was studying in Los Angeles to Colombia. He decided he's going to be a bright Harvard graduate. He decided that he's going to be someone who makes a difference in the world, right? 
And Bibi Netanyahu is living, I think, with a sense that the world decides for him. The destiny is so predestined, pre, pre-written, maktub, yeah. what the Arab yeah. says. And, and, and I think, and, and he's fighting it all the time, right? He's fighting this pre-written destiny of him, of the Jewish people, of his political career, whatever. He's all the time fighting something. And that's basically, well, I think, what makes him so different. A, sort of a nuclear, a nuclear Iran for 20 years. Exactly. That's, that's, it, it's, it sums it all up. I was, as you know, and we've spoken about this when the ca- when the microphones were the other way, but um, uh, was with the president in the first couple of years here, and he had and continues to have a very strong conviction that um, that the two state solution is is vital and vital uh, in no small measure to preserve the 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 identity of Israel as a Jewish democratic state. Uh, do you, what's your sense of that? Is that, and, and if that is true, what does the future hold if there is no solution? <laughs> That's again a question which uh, the short answer is that I, that I don't know. I, uh, you know, the one thing that I do know is that every time they say it's irreversible and they say so on the Israeli side and on the Palestinian side, it's irreversible. I mean, too many settlements, too much hostility, too little confidence. So there's no way to go. I know that it has been said so many times, and I know it's a matter of a snap. It's nothing for reality to change. That I know. How do I know that? Because I witnessed it. I witnessed it as as a little girl when they signed the peace accords with Egypt. And for me, Egypt, for a, how old was I? 15? It was the most frightening enemy that Israel had at the time. And all of a sudden, as a seventh grader or eighth grader, I see Sadat coming down from the plane and shaking hands with Rabin and saying, no more war, no more bloodshed. It happened in a snap. And I saw it happening with Netanyahu. With Netanyahu, when he came back from the White Talks and and he was the one who did an agreement concerning Hebron. And so I saw it happening. And I saw it happening with Sharon. Because when Sharon engaged in the disengagement, it's because he thought that's the preamble. He thought that's kind of a seminar that he's uh, engaging the Israeli people in as a, as a prelude towards uh, to becoming in the West Bank. I saw it happening with Olmert and Abu Mazen. And so I know that it can happen. I know that it can happen. And every time I, I spend some time with a Palestinian... And I see, as I told you, not only do, they, do we share the sense of victimhood, we share the same sense of humor. Uh, one of the last times that I sat with some of the senior Palestinians, it, it was in a hotel in Jerusalem, you might know, American colony. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful hotel on yes. the eastern part yes. of Jerusalem. And of course, he wanted to pay for coffee, and I wanted to pay for coffee, and he told me, listen, this is occupied territory, so this is my land. As long as you're a guest in my land, uh, I'm going to pay for coffee. When you host me in Tel Aviv, you're going to pay for coffee. And I told him, listen, there was one thing, and it has to do with Jerusalem. And I remember I had a similar conversation with an Arab physician in a northern village in the Galilee. And I, and, and I told this other guy the same. I said, listen, there's something that I have to tell you. You are a minority in this country. You should be a respected minority. 
you should be a minority that has equality and well-being and equal rights and civil rights. But you will always be a minority. This is an awkward kind of nation. It is a Jewish state. This is why we came to this country. So in that sense, David, we are living a tragedy which is built in. Zionism created the Palestinian tragedy. This is something that is not going to end. This is something that is there to stay. We have to bring it into account. Zionism was built on the tragedy of the Palestinian people. And still Zionism, I think, is a just and unavoidable revolution. The point is, and there I come back to your, to your question, the point is that when our fathers, our grandparents came to Palestine, they could not have seen the tragedy, because if they have seen it, they would go back. So they had not to see it. They were bound not to watch the evil that they are creating. We, my generation, my kids' generation, we cannot overlook it. That goes back to your question. What if we become an apartheid state, right? What if we become a one state which is, which is really uh, something that we don't want to even, even, even imagine, right? That Israel becomes a state in which a vast minority, a large minority, has no, has no rights. This is something that our generation cannot overlook. The first generation of pioneers that came to Israel could overlook it because they had nowhere to go, because they, they had no other land to conquer. They had no other home to live in. We cannot overlook the tragedy of the Palestinians, because now we have a home, because now we have a country, because now we have sovereignty. So we cannot overlook it. This is something that I know, that I feel, and I think most Israelis feel. So if you ask me, I think yes, at the end of the day, which is long, the day is long and sad and gloomy, but at the end of the day, there will be a historic compromise. Well, you, you, you mentioned these previous episodes, but they all took these big leaders that you've mm -hmm. spoken of. Uh, do you see the emergence? First of all, it, you, you sound as if you don't believe that Netanyahu can be that leader. Um, I think he doesn't believe that he can be. I think he doesn't really believe there can be a historic compromise. He thinks it's too much of a risk. And that's for his credit. I have to credit him that that's an authentic view of him. He thinks it would be reckless on his part to go nowadays to a historic compromise. But the, do you see among the uh, any any opposition leaders who might arise who could fill that role today? Um, well, I, this is up for grabs today because up until yesterday, if you'd asked me this question yesterday, <laughs> I would tell you that there's no alternative to Netanyahu and that uh, Itzhak Herzog, Buzi Herzog, the head of Labour Party, uh, has lost his world during the last couple of weeks trying to get into the government and it was a kind of pathetic attempt which brought him nowhere and perhaps brought upon him the end of his political career. But what happened? But you think the new, that the, the former defense secretary exactly. alone could emerge as a... Not only that, not only that. It's called, I just saw it on Twitter, someone called it Double Moshe. Double Moshe is Moshe Yalon, the exiting defense minister, and Moshe Kahlon, the, act, the, the present minister of the treasury. Now, listen, both were very, some uh, we, uh, in, the, in the near past, were close to Netanyahu. He lost them both because of political moves that he did. If they now create a bond, perhaps with Yair Lapid, 
perhaps with Gidon Saar, another mm-hmm. senior Likud uh, politician who is also in a kind of exile. So if these forces, who, by the way, were close to Netanyahu at the time, all are Likud guys, all are the sons of the same movement. If they unite together and they create a right of center, moderate center, soft center, mellow center, which caters to the taste of many Israelis who would otherwise vote for Netanyahu, that can be a, ca- a game changer. Plus, one thing that I have to tell you as a reporter, Bogi Yalon, the exiting defense minister, knows so much. And he has so much material. And he has been privy to so many silent and secret and closed discussions that if I were Netanyahu, I would be on the alert. But since I'm not Netanyahu, I'm a reporter, <laughs> I mainly would like to hear and see the stuff that Bogi Alon has with him. He does. Uh, so you would think he would be someone who could emerge as, as the leader because one of the, re- uh, one of the reasons my read from a distance that you know much better is that Israelis ultimately did make a security decision that they felt that only Netanyahu was mm-hmm. uh, prepared to do the things that were necessary to uh, to secure uh, Israel. If he had an opponent who had bona fides uh, in the security sector, that would change the calculus a little. Right. That, that's what I'm saying. That can be a game changer because at the end of the day, by the way, if you count noses at the Knesset, Netanyahu's coalition up until yesterday was 61 against 59 in the opposition. So it's not like he did, he did have a, hand, a landslide last year, but that's a landslide compared to what could have happened. So what I'm saying is that the, the, the map is still, is still torn. So you have, all, I wouldn't say an equality between left and right. I mean, Israelis are mostly right wing. But it, what I'm trying to say doesn't take much to create a game changer. Okay. And, uh, and I don't know what will happen in the next elections. One thing you should bear in mind, Netanyahu is getting always better and better as a politician and as a campaigner. And he's surprising his rivals all the time. And he's surprising those who, you know, who all the time uh, uh, predict his, 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 uh, his loss. You know, he beats these expectations time and again. One of the things he seems to do very well is play the us against the world card. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the world has been very harsh uh, lately because of this lack of progress. Uh, how much of a concern is that within Israel? And talk a little about U.S.-Israel relations. You talked in a positive way, I think, uh, a moment ago about President Obama, but his standing there is, uh, is, is mixed. Uh, at, uh, so, so talk a little bit about that. I I think, first of all, that you're right, that uh, Netanyahu has played the card of us against them. Uh, by the way, on many dimensions, us against them in Israel, us against them in the Arab world, us against them in Europe, and us against them in the U.S. And here in the U.S., uh, well, you know better than me that he, he not only played the us against them card, he played the Romney card. Yes. And and go figure, I mean, he it didn't, David, correct me if I'm wrong, it didn't cost him dearly. It did not. Not in Congress, surely, and not even at the White House. I mean, the, 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 the military aid and, and the it's kinds of weapons. Yes. Yeah, the, the, even, 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 even was, was, was even higher. Uh, and that's something which, for me, it's, even, it's, it's annoying to see how many Israelis are still critical 
of President Obama. The other day I did a report uh, that had to do with, um, the, again, with the Iranian nuclear uh, uh, program. And I, I came back to my archives and I saw them there a report that we did years ago about a conversation between President George W. Bush and Ehud Barak at the height of the concern here in Washington that Israel might strike alone in Iran. And Bush told Barak, I'm signing on this military aid, including cutting-edge bunker busters for Israel. But if you tell me that you might be using it to strike independently in Iran, I am not going to grant you these weapons. Which is something Bunker that Obama... Bunker busters are really important right. because of uh, where the Iranian program was hidden. Right. Uh, and bunker buster bombs were necessary exactly. in order to stage such an attack. Exactly. And I'm, I'm trying to say that Obama never said anything like that. So, and, and still Bush so, was so you know, dearly hugged by Israeli politicians and by the Israeli mm -hmm. public as was considered a great friend of Israel. I think time will tell, David. I think in time, both Americans will understand the historic meaning of Obama's presidency. And I, I know that I'm not the one to say it. I'm, I'm not an expert on American politics. But I bet time will tell his true um, mark on history, both on this country and on ours. I can't uh, debate you on that. <laughs> I know. Uh, and, uh, but obviously I have a very, very high regard, a regard for him. Here in the U.S., we're on a college campus now. You're a fellow, visiting fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. On this campus and every campus, there's this BDS movement uh, to, uh, uh, to disinvest uh, in, in Israel. Um, how, how much of a concern is that? And do you think it's being driven? Uh, a lot of, there are a lot of American Jews who are concerned about this, who feel like it's getting some impetus from uh, enemies of Israel. But it's also being driven by events and concerns about the state of the Palestinians and so on. Um, how, big, how much coverage does that get back in Israel, and how much of a concern is it? It is. It is being covered. But you have a whole generation of young Americans who are being exposed to this. I know. I know. It is a concern. And uh, I was in South America last year, and they were asking me about it as well, especially young Israelis who are there working with the community and trying to confront BDS and trying to confront Palestinian militant forces who are, you know, driving propaganda against us. And my sense is that if we could only, you know, if I could talk to a, a young American female college student here at the University of Chicago who went we to We have such plenty, a, so we can uh, supply Okay, so suppose, an audience suppose for I talk to a kind of Angela, okay? And she tells me, listen, I listened to them, and it makes sense. You guys are conducting a 50, almost 50 years of occupation, and you're oppressing them, and you are denying them of civil rights and stuff. And I would tell her, Angela, listen, I am not a, you know, an official representative of the state of Israel. I'm even critical of some of the policies of my government. But there is a huge distance between criticizing the policies of the government of the state of Israel and challenging the legitimacy of the mere existence of the state of Israel. And that's where BDS concerns me. Because these guys really I am not sure that they would, would sign on on the legitimacy 
of the existence of the State of Israel. The other thing that I would tell Angela, I would tell her, listen, every other week I broadcast a piece which is terrible for the image of the State of Israel. And I'm told that time and again. But when I broadcast a piece in which I show the story of what happened in an OP of the IDF where a Palestinian girl dropped by and someone shot her incidentally, uh, accidentally and someone there shot again and again and I thought that this Palestinian girl did not have to die and I fought on the veracity of this report for 10 years in court because I was sued for libel, that was a long story. But I thought that Israelis need to hear this radio communication where someone says she's a young girl, she's 10 or 12, she's running for her life, stop shooting. And they don't stop shooting. When I aired this piece, I did it because I knew that Israel is a place in which Israelis want to hear that and want to see that, even though it's so unpleasant to see or to hear. That's what I would tell Angela. And that's what I would tell the BDS people. As long as we are this kind of country, in which these kinds of incidents, having to do with Palestinians and occupation, the evil of occupation, everything, it's ventilated, it's out there, it's discussed, it's, you know, it's, we rip each other, you know, apart uh, uh, about these issues, but it's, it's, it's on the table. Nobody covers them, well, some, sometimes it's covered, but we uncover them. As long as, as this is the country in which I live, I, I don't have to agree with everything that happens, but as I told you at the beginning, I love dearly the way the democratic noise is still accompanying our life in Israel and the way that controversy is still, you know, I guess our, our, our deepest DNA. It still is. Yeah, I think uh, there's no question. You ask why does America support Israel. There's strategic reasons for it, but there are also um, bonds that go beyond that. And that's, and the, and what, what you just described is, is, is that, is that bond. It will take a policy change probably to persuade some of these young people who are fundamentally motivated by human rights. And I think sometimes a little insensitive to the fact that, uh, to the, the human rights of people who are who are stabbed and exactly. bombed, and uh, but uh, one hopes that uh, that moment that you described a few minutes ago arrives, and that there'll right. be there'll be a moment in history when these issues can be resolved, and uh, both peoples can move forward in in peace and security. But you just mentioned the knifing, and I I I, I would say also that to Angela, I have a 16 years old boy, he's our youngest. And he studies at school in Jerusalem, in a music academy. He plays the trumpet. And he stays for rehearsals until late at night. And I, you know, I, I hear myself talking to him, Gonen, are you at the bus stop? Yes. Are you alone? No, I try to stick to other people because you told me not to be alone. Because if someone comes mm -hmm. with a knife, I don't want to be alone. But then I tell, I tell him, you know, but if we are with a bunch of people, if they come and try to run you over with a car, they look for a bunch of people. And this is a crazy conversation. Don't be alone, be with a bunch of people. Don't be with a bunch of people, perhaps better be alone. And then I tell him, you know what? Just stand behind the, the bus station, that's safest. He says, but then I will not see when the bus comes and, and I will miss the bus. It's crazy. It's crazy that we have to live like that. And it's crazy that people have the, to live the way they live in Gaza. 
אין עם בית חנינה, אין עם חברון, אין עם ג'נין, אין עם טול כרם. It's crazy. We, none of us has to live like that. None of us. I have to leave it there, and again, with the hope that the future brings some resolution to that, so that both peoples can move forward uh, with peace and, and uh, security and hope for the future. But uh, I want to say, Alana, that the work that you do is really inspiring, and uh, um, We just got a little taste of it here. I, 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 I got to tell you, just really, I tried to do it briefly, that it, if there was one case in which my reporting and my identity as an Israeli and as a Jewish person all mixed up was when I was in Pakistan like four years ago or more, five years ago, to do the story about the hunt for Bin Laden. And I asked my fixer, who n- didn't know that I'm Israeli, because I came as an Argentinian reporter with an Argentinian passport, I asked him to take me to someone who knew Bin Laden personally. And before we entered, he said, I, I want you to know he's a Palestinian guy living here for 30 years. And I was terrified because the guy might recognize me. But I was there. I went in. And then he said, what's your name? I said, my name is Elena, and I am from Argentina. And you know what he told me? He said, you tell your people that you... You tell your people that you are lucky that the Jews did not stay in Argentina and went to Palestine, and now they are killing us instead of killing you. And for me, David, I was so tired. Who am I? I'm the Argentinian? No, I'm the Israeli. No, I'm the Jewish person who came from Argentina to Israel. So that was, for me, a, a great example of how all our identities mixed up. And for me, the only identity I felt safe with at that moment was the reporter who came to interview him about Osama Bin Laden. That was safest of all. Great to be with you. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.